Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, April 14th, 2017. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This evening we are at the home of our dear friends Nancy and Bruce Bond in northeast, northwest, I'm sorry, northwest Georgia. In the beautiful mountains of northwest Georgia, I might add. Tonight we are going to present part two of our relatively new series, but actually of Clifton's quite old series, Special Notices to All Who Deny to Seedline. And and we decided last week, going on the road, um, almost at the last minute, we only had a couple of weeks notice, that while we're on the road this year and, and next, we are going to present, or at least begin to present, all 24 of Clifton's special notices to deny 2C line. Hopefully we plan on doing at least one segment with Clifton himself later this year. Later this summer, I should say. This is part two. And here we're going to continue with our presentation of Clifton Emma Heiser's series of special notices challenging all of those who deny what we often refer to as 2C line. For my part, I would often rather call it 2Tree line, as the Bible begins with the story of two trees, and we may quite confidently assert that those two trees must represent races of people, the tree of life, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In the end, there is only one tree left standing, and all of the goat nations are thrown into the lake of fire. Anyone who looks at these things objectively must understand that the account of the end clarifies the purposeful obscurity of the account of the beginning. As Yahshua Christ himself said, that he had come to utter things which had been kept secret from the foundation of the world. For the short term, we plan to continue this presentation next week when we will present part three of Clifton's series. Then, over the months or years to come, we will continue to present Clifton's 24-part series until we see it through to completion, if Yahweh God affords us the opportunity. Doing this, we believe it will be a useful presentation, explaining the many fundamentals of our 2C line understanding of Scripture, which we believe is the only true understanding. And we hope it will give us the opportunity to help to clarify as well as to augment Clifton's important work. As Clifton had adeptly pointed out in part one of this series, the wheat were planted in the garden by Yahweh at the beginning, and that wheat represents the race of Adam. The devil came in rather immediately and planted tares among the wheat. In another place, Yahshua Christ, in Revelation chapter 12, identified that devil, the old serpent, with the fallen angels, which therefore must have been representative of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They must have been 
I'm sorry, they must have been here on earth as Yahweh created the Adamic man. And while the serpent was representative of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree itself must represent that entire cast of fallen angels and whatever corruptions they may have introduced ever since their fall, as the Enoch literature explains in many places. It is for that reason that we believe all of the world's non-Adamic races, the goat nations of the parable of Christ, have the same exact fate as the devil and his angels in Matthew chapter 25. Yahweh never took credit for the creation of the goat nations in Genesis or in any later scripture. All of those who deny these scriptural basics purposely seek to cloud the issues and to obscure the battle lines in this great war which our race has been confronted with ever since the events described in Genesis chapters 3 and 6 took place. Here we shall present and offer some of our own commentary on Clifton and Maheiser's special notice to all who deny two seed line part 2. And Clifton commences by saying that after finishing my special notice to all who deny two seed line part one, I realized there was much more evidence which could be presented on the subject. And I guess he, little did he know that he would still be writing on this subject. And he would write this particular series for 22 more parts after this one. So he says that he decided to post another paper concerning it. In that paper, he reminded everyone concerned of the fact that we are in a 7,000 plus year old war. And he says that the book of Enoch, in chapter 22, verses 6 and 7, speaks of this war where it says, Then I inquired of Raphael, an angel who was with me, and said, Whose spirit is that, the voice of which reaches to heaven and accuses? And he answered by saying, This is the spirit of Abel, who was slain by Cain, his brother. And Clifton puts in parentheses the word dizygotic or dizygotic, his dizygotic brother. And he will accuse him until his seed be destroyed from the face of the earth. And here Clifton seems to have been quoting a slightly modified version of Richard Lawrence's translation of the Book of Enoch the Prophet, which is otherwise known as One Enoch. The same passage translated by the Reverend R.H. Charles reads very similarly. Clifton added that word dizygotic in brackets, which he discusses below, and we will get to that shortly. Not all of the books of Enoch, however, are to be equally esteemed, and even within one Enoch there are several very different books written at diverse times, which were later concatenated, stuck together one after another, into a single book. Those several books should not be equally esteemed. But there certainly was a legitimate book of Enoch at one time, as it was quoted by the apostles, and particularly cited by the apostle Jude. For my part, I believe that the legitimate Enoch is best represented in part 
in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Whereas we must be very careful citing the Ethiopic Enoch. Unfortunately, the portions of Enoch in the Dead Sea Scrolls are very fragmented and incomplete. It cannot be determined with certainty whether or not this particular passage was found in the original Enoch literature, but there are portions of the Dead Sea Scrolls which are similar to this account where Raphael is described as having explained such things to Enoch. So I am comfortable accepting this passage. And one example of this is found in a scroll designated 4Q530, fragment 2. Other significant portions of one Enoch are not represented in the Dead Sea Scrolls at all and are very questionable. This passage reflects things that are found even in the canonical scriptures. Continuing with Clifton, he says that I added the word dizygotic to the above quote D-I-Z-Y G-O-T-I-C which kind of means coming from two seeds, right? I added the word dizygotic to the above quote inasmuch as Cain was only a half-brother. Because Cain's descendants and Clifton has in parentheses the Jews and we will address that shortly. Because Cain's descendants have yet, has, have as of yet to be totally destroyed. Abel's blood is still crying from the ground, even, even as the Apostle Paul attests in his epistle to the Hebrews. And he says that I know there are some in Israel identity who claim that Abel, because he shared the womb with Cain, was a polluted seed. I do not share that premise. For my Bible says Abel was righteous, Matthew chapter 23, verse 35. Abel could not have been considered righteous if he was of polluted seed. We read in Genesis chapter 4, verse 25, that Seth was appointed as another seed in place of Abel. Therefore, Seth was the same identical seed as Abel. The word Seth means substitute. Substitute for whom? If Seth were of pure seed, he could not have been a substitute for a polluted seed, now could he? And let me say first that Clifton, following practically all of the two seed line writers, pastors who came before him, here oversimplifies the scripture and history by limiting Cain's descendants to, quote-unquote, the Jews. And I don't know if he did that consciously. There is no doubt in Scripture that the people we know as Jews are the foremost amongst the descendants of Cain, just as the people whom we know as Israel are the foremost amongst the descendants of Adam in history. And that's because at the time of Abraham and Isaac, Yahweh himself chose the descendants of, of Isaac, both Jacob and Esau, to revolve future history around in order to show 
the perfection of his will in order to reveal his plan for man in scripture. And Esau was the vessel created for destruction, according to Paul in Romans chapter 9, while Jacob was the vessel created for mercy. So the descendants of Esau, ever since then, have taken a leading role and roughly represented the enemies of God. There's no doubt in that in the history of ancient Israel, ancient Palestine, on through Mesopotamia, where we see the Edomites in history, and that can be taken for granted, but we shouldn't oversimplify the descendants of Cain or the seed of the serpent. Studying the record of Genesis chapter 3 and in Genesis chapter 2, there's an entire tree of the knowledge of good and evil in Scripture. The serpent had seed besides Cain because your brother is your seed. Your kinsmen basically represent your seed. That serpent represented an entire tree which was already adversarial to God. And that tree had many branches, and that tree does represent what we would call a race or a breed, people that pass down genetics from generation to generation. Cain went and took a wife outside of the Garden of Eden, and he most likely, or almost certainly had to have had, to take that wife from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He didn't take it from the daughters of Adam, according to Scripture. He was cast out of the garden and found his wife elsewhere. The descendants of Cain themselves, who mingled later with the Rephaim, the quote-unquote fallen angel giants of Genesis chapter 6, the descendants of Cain themselves very likely branched out far and wide. And we find them amongst all the Canaanites. We find them in Mesopotamia. We find them in Egypt. We find them in many places beyond that. People move. We find them in Anatolia amongst the Hittites. People move. We can't imagine that all of the descendants of Cain stayed in Palestine for 5,000 years, simply because we can identify Kenites in Palestine. Greek histories and Persian inscriptions and, and things that are outside of Palestine, we can't always expect to identify these people by the same names that, they, that, that they're found with in the scripture. People move. So there are probably many more descendants of Cain in the world than those who had intermarried with the Canaanites, which in turn intermarried with Esau, which in turn became the Edomites. There were probably many more descendants of Cain in the world than those only. So it's it, it's often oversimplified in our Christian identity circles. And we must be aware that there's a much wider picture. Now, whether or not one wants to believe that Cain and Abel were twins is actually immaterial. 
Here Clifton seems to suggest that they were, and later on in this lesson, he shows how the original Hebrew language itself supports that suggestion. There is an early myth found in the poetry of Hesiod, which tells a very similar tale about the birth of Heracles, the son of Zeus, and a twin half-brother named Iphicles, who was born of a mortal man, which I believe was actually inspired by the account in Genesis chapter 4, although the literary connection may never really be proven. However, Clifton's statements here are still accurate even if Cain and Abel were not twins and whether or not we want to believe that they were. I wouldn't argue that they were not twins. I am simply pointing out that the possibility is otherwise. And we will see Clifton's argument below. There are older two seed line pastors, and Wesley Swift was one of them, and I believe Bertrand Compare accepted the idea, who rather unnecessarily teach something called telegony, whereby a child from a second husband is infected with the characteristics of previous husbands that a woman that a woman had children with. However, an understanding of the female productive system and genetics completely refutes the possibility of telegony which has no scientific basis whatsoever in order to identify a biological process you must be able to explain precisely how the process works and telegony the proponents of telegony fail miserably in february of, in february of 2016 we made a presentation of Clifton, of Clifton Emma Heiser's I'm sorry, I'm distracted. We made a presentation of Clifton Emma Heiser's paper, Telegony, Fact or Fiction. And here we shall only assert that telegony is fully refuted and does not belong to sound Christian identity understanding of Scripture. Even worse, those in Christian identity who teach telegony make the ridiculously unscrupulous claim that Seth was somehow the seventh pregnancy that Eve had had after Abel, and therefore with seven generations, uh, I'm sorry, with seven gestations, her, her womb was purified. All of this is a lie which is by no means supported by scripture or by reality. Yet, Dan Gaiman and many other charlatans and sectarians continue to promote these lies and discredit our cause with their fables. Continuing with Clifton, he says, For a moment, let's consider the argument the anti-seedliners put forth, that Cain was a full-blooded son of Adam. Let's just stop and think for a moment. Cain and Abel are born. Cain kills Abel. Cain is kicked out of the family. There are no qualified heirs for Adam. If then Seth were a substitute, 
He would by law have to be a substitute for the disinherited firstborn Cain. Why then does Genesis 4.25 indicate Seth is a replacement for Abel instead of Cain? Even if Cain was disqualified for the act of murder, Seth legally would have to be a replacement for Cain, the firstborn son. And we will discuss the text of Genesis 4.1 in detail in part this evening and as this series progresses. For now, I would also assert that Cain, that if Cain were disqualified only for his act of murder, perhaps the inheritance would have rightfully fallen on the eldest of Cain's sons and not on Seth. But scripture never even mentions a part for Cain's descendants in the inheritance of Adam. They are never even considered even where they are listed. Yet even the descendants of Shelah, while they were not counted as the firstborn, were permitted to remain with Judah, ostensibly for the purpose of God and not for the benefit of Israel. And Clifton discusses that next, where he says that if you will remember, in the case of Judah and his Canaanite wife, he had three sons by her. Yet Pharez, his fourth-born son by Tamar, was considered his firstborn. Actually, Cain was a son of Adam, a stepson. For when Cain was born of Eva's wife, Adam became his legal father. Just as in the case of Mary, the Messiah became the legal stepson of Joseph. And just as in Matthew 13.55, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas were called Yahshua's brothers when they were only half-brothers, or maybe only legal brothers, if they were children of Joseph by a former marriage. And here I must take <clears throat> slight issue with Clifton, and I don't think he realized this, trying to explain the existence of the half-brothers, and there were actually also half-sisters of Christ. Clifton evidently may not have considered that they could not have been children of Joseph by a former marriage because Christ, being accepted by Joseph, was also designated as the heir to Joseph's holdings. If Christ had had older stepbrothers, that would not have been possible. Rather, the brethren of Christ seem to have been his half-brethren on the side of Mary with another husband, Alphaeus, from events which evidently happened during those 18 missing years of the life of Christ. But the point which Clifton makes concerning the sons of Judah is certainly valid. The three sons he had with the Canaanite woman were in fact Judah's natural offspring, but because they were bastards, they could not receive any recognition as sons even if they were permitted to remain with their father. If they received recognition as sons, they would have had to have had the place of the firstborn, which they obviously did not have. Neither did Cain have any part in Adam's inheritance, and his progeny were not counted among Adam's sons. Because unlike Judah, Cain was not, unlike 
Judah and Shelah. Cain was not the natural offspring of Adam. Clifton continues, Before we quit this concept of Seth's seed being a replacement for Abel's seed, let's look into another aspect of this thing. In the Bible, there is a thing called the Levy Rate Law. If an Israelite wife's husband was killed in battle, and they had no children, the law required a brother to supply his seed so the widowed wife might be able to raise up seed, or children, to her deceased husband. Because both the husband's and brother's seed were identical, it was considered her husband's seed. The only way Abel's blood can be crying from the ground for revenge is if Seth is the identical seed as Abel and that Seth's seed will, in the end, <coughs> destroy Cain's seed. If what I am saying here is true, we as Israelites are descendants of Abel as well as Seth. Thus we must avenge Cain on behalf for Abel's seed. And Clifton makes a very valid point. Seth was chosen to raise up seed in place of Abel, where Cain was never required to fulfill the levy rate law and raise up seed for Abel. So as Clifton quoted from one Enoch at the beginning of this essay, Abel's testimony in his blood will accuse Cain until his seed be destroyed from the face of the earth. This is the story of the Bible, the struggle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, which is most fully described in the revelation of Yahshua Christ. Where all of the, go where all of the goat nations, the world's non-Adamic races, are clearly on the side of the serpent. And Clifton continues and says, Here are some excerpts concerning Cain and Abel taken from Matthew Henry's commentary, volume 1, on chapter 4 of Genesis. In these separate quotations, you will notice several very outstanding observations which could constitute individual lessons in themselves. And Clifton quotes, the Pharisees, quoting Matthew Henry, the Pharisees walked in this way of Cain when they neither entered into the kingdom of God themselves nor suffered those that were entering to go in, according to Luke chapter 11, verse 52. A fruit, still quoting Matthew Henry, a fruit of the enmity which is in the seed of the serpent against the seed of the woman as Abel leads the van in the noble army of martyrs, according to Matthew 23.35, so Cain stands in the front of the ignoble army of persecutors, according to Jude verse 11. So early did he that was after the flesh persecute him that was after the spirit, and so it is now, more or less, citing Galatians 4.29. And so it will be till the war shall end in the eternal salvation of all the saints and the eternal perdition of all that hate them. Thus, in Cain, the devil was both a murderer and a liar from the beginning. 
in the original, the word is plural. Thy brother's blood. It's not only his blood, but the blood of all those that might have descended from him. Or the blood of all the seed of the woman, who should in like manner seal the truth with their blood. He, Cain, went and dwelt on the east of Eden, somewhat distant from the place where Adam and his religious family resided, distinguishing himself and his accursed generation from the holy seed. His accursed generation would have to be archaic language written by Matthew Henry, who I believe wrote his commentary in the 18th century, that reference to his accursed generation would have to be archaic language, meaning his accursed race. We must state that Matthew Henry was not really what we would call 2C line, but even he could not help to distinguish Cain and Abel by their seed rather than merely by their behavior alone. We do not find it just, however, to compare Ishmael and Isaac to Cain and Abel. Ishmael was indeed a son of Abraham, and of the flesh of Abraham. He was not, however, the son which Yahweh had appointed, which was to come of the womb from the womb of Sarah. And Clifton continues, and he says that the seed liners point to Genesis, the anti-seed liners, I'm sorry, the anti-seed liners point to Genesis 4.1, quoting, And Adam knew Eve's wife, and she conceived, and bare Cain. And they say, That settles the matter. Adam was Cain's father. The problem is, they are reading the account in English, and it was originally written in Hebrew. In the original Hebrew, there were no punctuation marks, no capital letters at the beginning of a sentence, no periods at the end. There were no vowels. There were no chapter and verse divisions as we know them today. Therefore, we have to hope that the translators put all of these things in their proper places. Yet we know that they didn't always do that. For many times, part of a topic is given at the end of one chapter and continued into the first part of the following chapter. So, if they were inconsistent with the chapter and verse divisions, so might they also be on these other things. In Ralph Woodrow's Babylon Mystery Religion on page 146, there is a footnote which reads that when the Bible was originally written, Commas and other punctuation marks were completely unknown. Punctuation marks were invented by Aldus Manutius in the 15th century. Since the original manuscripts had no punctuation marks, the translators placed commas wherever they thought they should go, based entirely on their beliefs. So Clifton says that with this, you can begin to see the problem we are up against with the interpretation of Genesis 4.1. We must give the translators credit, though, as they placed a semicolon between and Adam knew Eva's wife and she conceived in Borcain. A semicolon indicates the greatest degree of separation possible within a sentence before dividing it into two separate sentences. It is my opinion, Clifton says, that the translators should have used two separate sentences in this case as Adam knowing Eve 
in this particular case had nothing to do with Eve bearing Cain. Should it have two sentences or one? Once we begin to understand that Eve was pregnant with Cain before Adam ever knew her, we can realize Adam knowing Eve didn't have anything to do with Eve bearing Cain. It's the old concept of cause and effect. I could say I went to a movie one evening and the sun rose the next morning. If this was said, it would be true. But even though it was true, it does not mean that the sun rising the next morning had anything to do with my having gone to a movie. Now, I do not remember the exact timing of all of Clifton's papers. And when I presented part one of this series, I was actually about six months off in my memory of when these 24 special notices were written, something which Clifton helped me clarify the next morning. This series began in May of 2001. And this particular essay was dated for June of that year. It would not be for another two years, in June 2003, Clifton diligently studying this issue, that he would write his essay, The Problem with Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, where he would establish from the Interpreter's Bible that Genesis 4.1 contains a gloss which cannot be accurately translated with any degree of certainty. Doing that, Clifton also demonstrated from the early Aramaic Targums that early interpreters of scripture attempted to fill in the blanks, so to speak, with an account that shows that Cain was not the son of Adam and Eve was indeed sexually seduced by a so-called serpent or fallen angel. There are many scriptures which support this most of them found in other apocryphal literature, howbeit valid apocryphal literature. More recently, in April of 2016, I added a section to Clifton's paper on Genesis chapter 4 verse 1, showing from the hexapla of origin that many early translators of the Old Testament into Greek had also struggled with Genesis 4.1 with several different results which helps to substantiate what Clifton found in the interpreter's Bible concerning this passage. Origen's Hexapla, a work of the 3rd century AD which placed his own Greek translation of the Hebrew and the Latin of his time, not Jerome's Latin, which came 150 years later, and various other extant Greek translations of the Bible, Origen placed them all side by side in columns, showing many variant readings in the Greek versions of Genesis 4.1, as well as many other passages which helped to elucidate the problems that the earliest translators had with this verse. Translating the various Greek interpretations of the Hebrew into English on my own, the following readings are found. The Latin says, I got a man to help Yahweh, and the Latin uses Jova or Yova 
Y or J or Y. It's an I in Latin, actually. O U A. And the U could be interpreted as a V. I O U A is Yahweh. Or Job, as we may say. Latin. The Latin reading is I got a man to help Yahweh. And Origen's reading, the first Greek reading, which he supplies, I have acquired a man through or by God. And there's a definite article which indicates a particular God, so we may, would make that a capital G God, referring to Yahweh. And I'm sorry, that's the first Greek reading he provided, and then the second Greek reading was his own from the Hebrew and Syriac, I have acquired a man with a god, or by a god, and there's no definite article there, which indicates no particular god. So we, in English, would add an indefinite article, the letter A, a. I have acquired a man with a god. The third Greek reading at origin supplied, I have acquired a man with a lord, no definite article, no particular lord. I have acquired a man with a lord, a curios, a small l lord. And the fourth Greek reading, I have acquired a man, a lord. And in that fourth Greek reading, the two nouns, each being singular and in the accusative case, with no prepositions, the two nouns are both the object of the verb. And therefore, they both refer to the same object, a man who is a lord, we would say in English. While these readings do not directly support Clifton's entire thesis presented in this paper, they do support the assertion that the text of Genesis 4.1 was rather problematic to the earliest translators of the Hebrew into Greek. For that reason, Clifton turned to the Aramaic Targums for an indication of how the Hebrew scribes of that same era understood the passage. Now, we will not get into that here. We will get into it further on in this series. But, we will not be convinced that the Masoretic text, upon which most modern Bible versions are, is based, and which came along nearly 800 years after Origen, is a better or a more authoritative version of Genesis 4.1 than the five different versions that Origen had. In fact, the Masoretic text still reflects all of the troubles which the early translators had with this passage. So while Clifton's statements here, in this part two of his special notices to all who deny two seed line, are rather rudimentary, Clifton put a lot of diligence into studying the matter further. And his statements here do not reflect the much fuller understanding of the problems with this passage which we have today. As this series progresses, we will make an exhibition of the proof that Genesis 4.1 is a corrupt an unreliable witness to the parentage of Cain. And since there is no second witness that Adam was the father of Cain, we cannot accept it as a fact. 
especially since there are more witnesses to the contrary. So for now, we shall continue with Clifton's essay where he argues that Eve had twins. And he says, Genesis 4.2 says, She again bore his brother Abel. The word in Hebrew for again is Strong's number 3254 and means to continue something or to add, to add to it in other words. And Clifton says, in other words, after she bore Cain, she continued bearing Abel. I have heard some say that Abel wasn't born for several years after Cain, but the Hebrew doesn't support such an idea. The Hebrew word can also mean conceive again, but this does not seem to fit the context. Now Clifton does not tarry on that argument, but he continues with the New Testament under the heading more on John 8:44, which we had discussed in part one of this series. We will again quote this verse from Smith and Goodspeed, as we did in special notice to all who deny two seed line part one. With this rendition, there can be little doubt the Jews are the genetic descendants of Satan, and they are, but other genetic descendants of Satan who were outside of the New Testament context in Judea nevertheless existed. The devil is the father you are sprung from, and you do not want to carry out your father's wishes. He was a, and you want to carry out your father's wishes. He was a murderer from the first, and he has nothing to do with truth, for there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks in his true character, for he is a liar and the father of them. And Clifton <clears throat> comments by saying that this is what the Wycliffe Bible Commentary has to say concerning this verse on page 109. The true reason for their, meaning the Jews, failure to receive him, meaning Joshua Christ, was their kinship with the devil. He was their father. No wonder they acted as he does. Referring to Matthew 23.15. His special sins are lying, seen in connection with the temptation in the garden, and murder in the incitement of Cain to slay his brother. Citing 1 John 3.12. Clifton says, please notice the word kinship here. It's not talking about something spiritual, but literal and genetic. Matthew Henry's commentary understands it this way also, in volume 5, on page 999. And quoting Matthew Henry, having thus disproved their relation both to Abraham and to God, or Yahweh, he comes next to tell them plainly whose children they were. You are of your father the devil. If they were not God's children, they were the devil's. For God and Satan divide the world of mankind. The devil is therefore said to work in the children of disobedience, citing Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. All wicked people are the devil's children, children of Belial, citing 2 Corinthians 
the serpent's seed, citing Genesis 3.15, children of the wicked one, citing Matthew 13.38. They partake of his nature, bear his image, obey his commands, and follow his example. And before continuing with Clifton's remarks on this passage, we have to answer the scoffers. There are those who would say that, oh, if that were true, then all men would belong to the devil, since all men sin. But as we are told, in rather simple language, in 1 John chapter 2, when the children of Israel sin, they have an intercessor in Yahshua Christ. But the children of the devil have no such intercessor, and they cannot be saved because they themselves are sin. So John also said that the Adamic man cannot sin because his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. As Matthew Henry stated, Christ showed that his opponents, the Jews, were not born of God. They were Edomite and Canaanite infiltrators. As they were also described by Peter and Jude. So Clifton says, concerning both the remarks of the Wycliffe Commentary and Matthew, Matthew Henry, that these last two quotations are simply brilliant, yet slightly flawed. I believe it is simply amazing that these commentators had moments of inspiration, for the two seed line message and Israel identity were not to be revealed until the end times, according to Matthew chapter 13, verses 37 through 43 which is the explanation of the parable of the wheat and the tares. And Clifton says that this passage indicates, 1. The tares will be gathered and burned. And then 2. The wheat will be gathered into the kingdom. Here the tares are those of the satanic seed line, while the wheat are true Israel. While both of these messages are important, for the moment the two seed line message has priority. For the majority of Israelites will not understand their identity until after the tares are cast into the fire. With the two seed line message coming to the forefront, they are at the present time beginning to feel the heat. If you haven't as yet grasped the two seed line message, maybe it isn't your time to understand it. If you do fathom this message, I would encourage you to promote it, for it is the message of the hour. And it is true that our interpretation of Scripture is most despised by the enemies of Christ, who exert much effort to obscure it, to pervert it, to ridicule it, and to keep it from becoming popular, to keep it from spreading. And Clifton continues and says, For yet another comment on John 8.44. I will use the Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown commentary on the whole Bible, page... 1046. Ye are of your father the devil. This is one of the most decisive testimonies of the objective or outward personality of the devil. It is quite impossible to suppose an accommodation to Jewish, or Hebrew really, views or a metaphorical form of speech in so solemn an assertion as this and citing Alford, they say that the lust of your father, his impure, malignant, ungodly propensities, inclinations, and desires you will do, 
are willing to do, not of any blind necessity of nature, but of pure natural inclination. As the Apostle says, as John the Baptist says, as Christ himself said, the tree is known by its fruits. And Clifton continues and says that we will now consider some of the passages quoted here by these various commentator, commentaries, starting with Matthew 13:38, which reads, The field is the world, the good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. And he goes on to say that the word children in this passage is the Greek word 5207 and means legitimate sons, the word would be huios, which is a son, as opposed to 3541, or illegitimate sons. And I believe Clifton's referring to the word natus, which is a bastard. How fitting is the use of this Greek term in this particular verse? For this is exactly what this passage is speaking about. In other words, it is addressing the legitimate or lawfully begotten sons of Adam Israel, and the legitimate or lawfully begotten sons of Satan. And Clifton's saying that they're lawfully begotten sons of Satan because they are legitimate natural sons of Satan. They're called the children of the wicked one. They're lawfully begotten relative to Satan, not relative to God. There's a difference. And Clifton says, while it is true that there was nothing legitimate or lawful concerning the birth of Cain, nevertheless, the Greek words make it quite clear that there are a genuine and counterfeit children spoken of. It might be said, more or less in this manner, the unlawful and illegitimate sons of Satan are his lawful responsibility. The Wycliffe Bible Commentary has the following to say in respect to this verse, meaning Matthew 13:38. The field is the world, not the church. Children of the kingdom. As in the explanation of the sower, the seed is here regarded as having produced plants. Gen- Matthew chapter 13, verse 19. The springing up of Christ's true followers in this world is counterfeited by the devil, whose children often masquerade as believers. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 through 15 is cited in that aspect. And that's a very good statement and citation. Clifton says that verses 13.8 and 13.23 of Matthew would be more relevant than... 1319. First, the Wycliffe Commentary cites 2 Corinthians 11, and that's where Paul writes of the enemies of Christ seeking to entrap Christians, and it reads, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. And Clifton made the remark that Matthew 13, verses 8 and 23 would have been more appropriate than where the Wycliffe commentary points to Matthew 13, 19, stating that the seed here is regarded as having produced plants. Those other passages Clifton refers to speak of the seed which fell into the good ground, 
But the parable of the sower is an entirely different analogy from the parable of the tares of the field, and the seed all being of one kind. Only the children of God are meant to hear the gospel in the first place, the seed of the parable of the sower all being of one kind, not the seed of the wheat and the tares, which is two kinds. The seed of the parable of the sower all being of one kind only the children of God are meant to hear the gospel in the parable of the sower in the first place. As Paul also suggests in that passage of 2 Corinthians chapter 11. The ministers of 2 Corinthians chapter 11 who are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ because Satan himself could also transform himself into an angel of light. So Satan's ministers may also be transformed into ministers of righteousness. And of course they would do that to lead the sheep astray. The ministers of 2 Corinthians 11, the ministers of Satan, are indeed the wicked who would snatch the word of God and corrupt it, who are mentioned as a collective singular in Matthew 13:19. The ministers of Satan in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 are the wicked ones who snatched the word of God from the seed which fell into the good ground in Matthew 13:19 where the King James Version adds the word one to the text and reads, When anyone heareth the word of the kingdom and understands it not, then cometh the wicked one and catcheth away that was sown in his heart. This is he which received seed by the wayside. I'm sorry, that's the seed that fell into the shallow ground because they received the word of God. But not taking it to heart and studying it diligently, they're led astray by all these people of the seed of the serpent who would purposely deceive the people of God. The teachers of false doctrines, those who introduced false doctrines thousands of years ago and still do it today. Continuing with Clifton, as 2 Corinthians 6.15 was referred to by Matthew Henry, let's take a look at that one next. We will quote verses 14, 16, and 17 as well, for they are pertinent to the passage. While this passage strongly commands we are not to have common ground with people of a different race or species, it also charges us to have no fellowship with the wicked unbelievers, especially the Jews. If you will check your center reference, you will notice that it takes you to Deuteronomy chapter 7 verses 2 and 3, where we, the ancient Hebrews, are instructed not to mingle with the Canaanites representative of today's Jews. Apparently, the anti-seedliners haven't learned this very important lesson yet. And citing the King James Version of 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And we have a problem with that verse because in the Greek, unbelievers is actually 
an adjective. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what concord has Yahshua or Christ with Belial? Or what part has he that believes with an infidel? And what agreement has the temple of Yahweh with idols? For ye are the temple of the living Elohim, or God. As Yahweh had said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their Elohim, or God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be separate, saith Yahweh, and touch not the unclean, and I will receive you. And there's a word that we skipped there. Clifton's presentation of the passage rather appropriately scratches the added word thing from the text. As the unclean of 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 17 are indeed the them who the children of Israel are to come out from among earlier in the verse. If the entire passage were correctly translated, in my opinion, the racial character of the message is even more startling. Do not become yoked together with untrustworthy aliens. For what participation has justice and lawlessness? And what fellowship has light towards darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what share the faithful with the faithless, those who are outside of the faith? Not the belief in Jesus, the faith of Abraham, who didn't believe in people of other races when he was told that his seed would become many nations. Those many nations, those people, are the people of the faith. And what agreement has a temple of Yahweh with idols? For you are a temple of the living Yahweh, just as Yahweh has said, I will dwell among them, and I will walk about, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. On which account, come out from the midst of them, and be separated, says the prince, and do not be joined to the impure, and I will admit you. We will not have time here to give a full exposition of our reasoning behind the translation, but we have already done so in part 7 of our recent commentary on Paul's second epistle to the Corinthians, which will be linked in the text here. Clifton continues to discuss this passage, and he says, We will now take a survey of what some various commentaries state on this passage. As this is a very important part of the 2C line message, we should take special note of the following. The Believer's Bible Commentary by William MacDonald, page 1845, says that this section of 2 Corinthians is one of the key passages in all the Word of God on the subject of separation. It is clear instruction that the believer should separate himself from the unbelievers. Iniquity, darkness, belial, idols. Neither can light have communion with darkness. When light enters a room, the darkness is dispelled. Both cannot exist together at the same time. And the truth of Clifton's remarks in conjunction with this statement is only made fully evident once it is realized that Christ <clears throat> came only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel and that a bastard shall not enter into the congregation of Yahweh. 
And Clifton continues and says that the Adam Clark's commentary on the Bible, abridged by Ralph Earl, on page 1140 states, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. This is a military term. Keep in your own ranks. Do not leave the Christian community to join in that of the heathens. As righteousness cannot have communion with unrighteousness, and light cannot dwell with darkness, and white people should not be forced to live in, to live and work with niggers. The Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown Commentary on the Whole Bible, page 1243, as Satan is opposed to God, and Antichrist to Christ, Belial, being here opposed to Christ, must denounce all manner of anti-Christian uncleanness. And citing Bengal, He that believeth with an infidel, translate a believer with an unbeliever. And we would not agree with that last statement. Somebody who is outside of the faith is not necessarily an unbeliever. They're just excluded from the faith because Christ only came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The Wycliffe Bible Commentary contributes this on page 1273. The word concord, soon catathesis, the Greek word for the word concord, is found only here in the New Testament. The holiness and purity of Christ cannot harmonize with the wickedness and impurity of Belial, which they admit is a synonym for Satan. The word agreement, soon catathesis, climaxes the four previous words that Paul used to express sinful union between the sons of God, Yahweh, and the children of the devil. This word suggests a sympathetic union of mind and will in a plan mutually agreed to Yahweh or God cannot lovingly entertain those who are knowingly and willingly involved in evil. Evil, And even with that, we must say, they seem to confuse genetics and behavior. This is always oversimplified in the minds of men. In truth, the children of the devil can do nothing but evil, even if they appear to do good. The children of God can sin, or they can endeavor to do good, but they are nevertheless children of God, for which reason they will ultimately be forgiven, as one John, as the first epistle of John thoroughly explains. And the first epistle of John is in total agreement with what Paul said on the same topic in Romans chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8. And Clifton continues, from the Matthew Poole's Commentary on the Holy Bible, we get the following, volume 3, page 618. It is a metaphor drawn from horses or oxen, which should draw together being in the same yoke, neither standing still nor yet holding back. It is a general precept prohibitive of all unnecessary communication and intimate fellowship with such, as either in matters of faith or worship, or in their lives and conversations, who declare themselves to be unbelievers. And what concord has Christ with Belial? Christ, who is the head of the unbeliever, of the believers, I'm sorry, and to him who is the head of all unbelievers, and the God of the world,
Therefore we ought not to have no unnecessary communication with such who manifest themselves to be of their father the devil. And again he's confusing genetics with behavior. Rather, the metaphor is taken from the law, which shows that men of different races should never be yoked together. The law is an instruction that animals of different kinds or species should not be yoked together to plow the same field. The metaphor is taken from the law which shows that men of different races should never be yoked together and that word unbelievers or the faithless as it's translated in the Christogenian New Testament is a very misunderstood word by Judeo-Christian churchmen. It doesn't mean those who deny the faith. It means to describe those who are outside of the faith. Now those outside of the faith may include those who deny the faith. There's no doubt about that. You can be a Jew and deny the faith, but a Jew is also outside of the faith, so it doesn't matter what a Jew denies. He's outside of the faith. He's not an unbeliever. He's faithless. The word is apistus, meaning without faith. It's the word for faith or belief with the negative particle in front of it. It doesn't necessarily infer a willful act of unbelief. It merely describes someone who is without the faith or outside of the faith. The Matthew Henry's commentary has this to say concerning this passage, volume 6, page 625. It is an unequal yoking of things together that will not agree together, as bad as to have plowed with an ox and an ass, or to have sown diverse sorts of grain intermixed. What an absurdity it is to think of joining righteousness and unrighteousness, or mingling light and darkness, and what comfortable communion can these have together. Christ and Belial are contrary one to the other. They have opposite interests and designs, so that it is impossible that there could be any concord or agreement between them. Therefore the exhortation is to come out from among them and keep at due distance, to be separate, as one would avoid the society of those who had the leprosy or the plague, for fear of taking infection. From all of these commentaries, one aspect upon which they all seem to agree is fully evident. That there is identified in Scripture a class of men who have no opportunity to repent or to ever be converted or to be saved, but from whom Christians are to remain distinct, <coughs> not even to evangelize. Once we realize that there are people in the world who were never to be evangelized, then we can start to admit the truth of 2C line. If there are people in the world, false apostles, who transform themselves into ministers of light, <coughs> who were never to be evangelized, that is the beginning of the awakening to 2C line. And it's very clear in many places in Scripture <coughs> that there are people in the world 
who were not to be evangelized, who were not to be converted. That's the beginning of realizing the truth to 2C line. Clifton then comments on these. Where there are a few better examples of the wicked, where there are few better examples of the wicked who would steal in among the good seed and corrupt the word in their hearts. And he says that there is probably no better example of fellowship of light with darkness than the blatant organization, the International Fellowship of Christians and Jews. At 309 West Washington Street, Chicago, Illinois. And I must interject that I think that organization has a satellite office in that same city at 4901 West Oakdale Avenue, which is assigned to Christian Identity. They say that their aim is working to strengthen Christian Jewish understanding on issues of shared concern. Supporters of this organization are people like Pat Robertson, Jerry Falwell, Pat Boone, Jack Hayford, Rabbi Yekiel Eckstein, Senator Joseph Lieberman, Charles Colson, Saleh Meridor, Yuli Edelstein, Z. Raviv, and Ehud Omer, among others. And let's not forget John Hagee, as he is really in bed with the Jews. They promote a program called On Wings of Eagles, where they dupe the ignorant Christians into donating money to fly a Jew from Russia to Jerusalem and help them to get established with a job, home, and food when they get there. Ted R. Wheeland, an anti-sea liner, in his booklet, Eve, Did She or Didn't She?, on page 94 went so far as to say the scribes and Pharisees of Yahshua's time were true members of Jacob's household, as follows, and quoting Ted Wheeland with great brevity, Acts chapter 4, verses 5 through 10, 24 through 35, and chapter 7, verses 2 through 52, declare the Pharisees were Judahites of the seed line of Jacob, Israel. And that's certainly not true. That's not what those passages are declaring. Clifton says, while it might be true that there are, that there were still a smattering of pure-blooded Judah left in that area, and there certainly were a good number of them, they would have been significantly few. To equate these few with the scribes and Pharisees would be like saying, in effect, the scribes and Pharisees were and are the children of light rather than the children of darkness. Revelation chapters 2.9 and 3.9 make it quite clear that there were both true and false members of the tribe of Judah. No doubt Ted Wheeland is a product of the Judeo-Christian Bible College, Christian Leadership Bible College in Denver, Colorado, where he attended for four years, as he makes mention on page 133 of his book, A College for Fellowship of Light and Darkness. To answer Wieland's preposterous statement that the Pharisees were Judahites of the seed line of Jacob Israel, I will use Colossians 2.15, and Clifton quotes, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Clifton goes on to say, The quoting now from the Adam Clark's commentary on the Bible, abridged by Ralph Earl on page 1200, 
Let's see if what Clark has to say agrees with Wieland. It is very likely that by the principalities and powers over whom Christ Yahshua triumphed, the apostle means the Nesioth and Roshoth, who were the rulers and chiefs in the Sanhedrin and synagogues, and who had great authority among the people, both in making constitutions and in explaining traditions. The propagation of Christianity in Judea quite destroyed their spiritual power and domination. The Wycliffe Bible Commentary commentary portrays the picture on this verse, to an even greater extent, on page 1341. Spoiled, or better, stripped, the Greek word apekduomahi, apekduomahi, to take off from is a compound not essentially different from another Pauline expression, ekduo. The later, as used in the Septuagint and Classical Greek, of the defeating or stripping of enemies in war provides a clue to the meaning here. In Old Testament times, captives were stripped of most or all of their clothing. This action came to symbolize defeat, And for the prophets, it signified the judgment of God, citing Ezekiel chapters 16 and 23. In the New Testament, this idea moves into the realm of last things, when the righteous will be clothed, in contrast to the wicked, who will stand stripped and naked under God's judgment, citing Matthew 22 and several passages of the Revelation, as well as 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Matthew Henry's commentary in volume 6 describes this verse as follows. He spoiled them, broke the devil's power, and conquered and disabled him, and made a show of them openly, exposed them to public shame, and made a show of them to angels and men. The Matthew Poole's commentary on the Holy Bible in volume 3, page 718, comments on this passage thusly. Delivering his subjects from the power of darkness, Colossians 1.13, according to the first promise, Genesis 3.15, he made a show of them openly, Yeah, and Christ did, as an absolute conqueror, riding, as it were, in his triumphal chariot, publicly show that he had vanquished Satan and all the powers of darkness. Then Clifton goes on to cite the Interpreter's Volume, the Interpreter's Bible, Volume 11, which makes the following observations concerning this passage. The Mighty Spirits and in brackets they have Jewish control, which once held men in their dominion of darkness, citing Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, are now reduced to impotence. Paul depicts the breaking of their dominion under the figure of a military defeat. That Greek word, apek duomahi, that he stripped them and the parade of the vanquished in the triumphal procession of the conqueror. God, or Yahshua, has stripped them of their arms, displayed them in public as his trophies of victory, leading them captive 
leading them in captive chains at his chariot wheels. And I would say that while all these commentaries did well and correctly connect the powers of darkness to the principalities and powers which Joshua had stripped, they seem to have failed to connect the most important statement of Christ, where he said in John chapter 12, that now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And in John chapter 14, that hereafter I will not talk with you much. For the prince of this world comes and has nothing in me. None, none of the true guardians of the Mosaic Covenant could have been considered in this manner. Clifton continues to discuss Colossians 2.15, where Paul states of Christ that having spoiled principalities and powers, he made, which are the princes of this world that had nothing to do with Christ, having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly triumphing over them in it, and he says that many commentaries try to connect Colossians 2.15 with Yahshua dying on a cross. But this refers rather to Messiah's encounters with the scribes and Pharisees, his open denunciation of them. If the satanic Jews, scribes and Pharisees are not meant here, who then, pray tell, is it speaking of? To help answer this, let's find out who the scribes and Pharisees are and are not. For this we will read Josephus' Wars, Book 2, where it says, Chapter 8, Paragraph 2, where it says, For there are three philosophical sects among the Judeans, or Jews, as, as the translators have it. The followers of the first, of whom are the Pharisees, of the second, the Sadducees, and the third sect, which pretends to a severer discipline, are called Essenes. These last are Jews, or Judeans, by birth, and seem to have a greater affection for one another than the other sects have. And Clifton says that it would appear from this that of these three, only the Essenes could claim to be pure-blooded Israelites of the tribe of Judah. Why didn't Josephus mention the Pharisees and Sadducees as being Judeans by birth? Evidently, Wieland believes himself more of an authority on the origin of the Jews than Josephus, and more of an authority than even Joshua himself. And I must add that Ted Wieland, in his denial of so many aspects of the New Testament, and the history of Judea in the centuries leading up to the ministry of Christ is indeed no better than the typical and deceived Judeo-Christian. If the Essenes were Judeans by birth, Josephus fully insists within the context of his own work that the Pharisees and Sadducees had both admitted Edomites and Canaanites and others into their ranks. In our series of commentaries on the book of Acts, especially in Acts chapter 4, but also in the commentary on Acts chapter 5, the very passages which Ted Whelan cites to support his spurious claims, we showed not only that the high priests, 
from the time of Herod were all Sadducees, who denied both angels and spirits, and who also denied that Yahweh God had any care in the sins of man. But we also showed that they were not even Israelites. There is no point in Christian identity at all when the various parties in Scripture are not properly identified or are only partially identified or even purposely misidentified as Ted Whelan seems to be doing. Here we will end our presentation of part two of Clifton's essay and his special notices to all who deny to seed line. We will resume this from the from our home in the Redneck Riviera next Friday. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening.